We're in this series called Fight. It's defending my relationships from all corners. And it's my hope that it gives you a new understanding and maybe a new perspective on how to fight fair in your relationships. And there are relationships to fight for. There are relationships that even are going to times experience some fights. And so instead of fighting with each other, how about we start fighting for one another? You know, God did not uh, design us to experience life alone. Uh, he expected that we would have and be in relationships. And for a guy like me, I, I need, need people and I, I need to feed off of people. Uh, I need people in my life to encourage me. I, I need people in my life to feed my, my spiritual soul. Proverbs chapter uh, 27 says, as iron sharpens iron, so one man or one person sharpens another. So I might have, have a high level of self-discipline, but when I have people around me to encourage me, my, my self-discipline can go further. I, I might have a, 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 an easy way of handling crisis in life, but when I have people around me to share in trouble and sorrow, uh, I can heal up faster. I might be a responsible person, but if I have people around me that keep my actions and my attitude in check, it's going to up my game and make me a better person. You might have heard the old saying, alone you can run fast, but together you can run far. Man, there's going to be some times in life where you're going to need some people around you to run far. And though you may be able to run fast alone, it is a more fulfilling life when you're able to run with others and journey in this life because you were not designed to live alone. Actually, God uh, looked upon man when he first created Adam and he saw that there was no companion suitable for him. So God said, this is not going to do. And so in the book of Genesis called the book of beginnings, it tells us that the Lord God said, it's not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And that word helper is really the helpmate, someone to come along who is different, but not so different you can't relate to that person. And I, I don't know what I would do in life if my helpmate, Kelly, my wife, uh, wasn't in my world and I wasn't in her world. Uh, I don't know what my life would look like if Kelly wasn't in my life. Um, it might look something like this. I know that. <clears throat> and her life might have turned out a little like this. Yeah. But she chose not to marry the prince and she took on the preacher, which is probably honestly a downgrade. <clears throat> In all honesty, though, uh, when I look at our relationship, she's the one that brings the greatest help to the relationship. It's, uh, it's kind of lopsided, I feel like. Uh, you know, this past Thursday, many of us in this room celebrated Valentine's Day. It's a day to express love for one another, but maybe you didn't know that Valentine's Day is the, is the second most uh, feared day because uh, that's a day where relationships break up. Out of all the days in the year, uh, New Year's Day, or New Year's Eve, rather, and Valentine's Day are the two most days that... Uh, you'll most likely be broken up with. And uh, well, actually, any major holiday is. And uh, I know there's a lot of pressure that goes along with Valentine's Day, especially if you're just dating someone new for the first time. Like, there's a whole lot of pressure to impress. I can remember and look back at the very, very first Valentine's Day or so that uh, my wife and I were just starting to uh, date one another. And um, I had sent her this, like, bouquet of roses. Not just, like, any bouquet. That bouquet that's, like, the overkill Valentine's Day bouquet where I'm like, just anything that will fit in that vase, put it in there. Anything that can fit in the vase, just put it in there. And then Kelly went downstairs just a couple weeks ago, and she found the note that was attached to that bouquet. Let me tell you about the romance that was in our relationship at the time. It said, quote, are these gaudy enough for you? <laughs> Man, it has been that kind of romance in our relationship that has kept that fire alive for the last 18 years. 
Listen, there's a lot of things in our life, some joys and pains and uh, some great things, high, high mountaintops, low valleys that we've been through together as a couple, and, and we've been able to go through it quite swimmingly, but that's not to say we haven't had conflict. There's been times where we've fought, there's been times where we've had conflict, there's been times when, when we just weren't able to find the, uh, the same page and get on it together, and I, what I love about Kelly is she's a lover, not a fighter, but she'll fight for the things that she loves, and I wish I was more like that. But here's what I want you to know and what, what I want to understand too better about, about this day is all relationships fight. You need to be aware of that. The ones that you've pictured as perfect, they fight. All relationships fight. But healthy relationships fight fair. And healthy relationships fight for a resolution. It's the unhealthy relationships that fight to win. A healthy relationship is going to fight for a resolution. Last week we had learned that Great relationships are possible, but they're not likely unless you do three things. They're possible, but not likely unless you do three things. And we got this from a study that came from Princeton University that revealed that out of 1,246 couples, 1,245 remained happily married if they did just these three simple things. Like they gave them a 99.92% success rate till death did they part happily ever after if they just did these three things. And here's what they were. Pray for one another, attend church together, and discuss the Bible together. They weren't like profound things, they were simple things, and they have proven that you will have a 99.92%, you will increase the odds, because right now it's 50-50, right now it's 50-50, but you put those three things in your life, and you increase the odds so that 99.92%, you have a chance in your marriage to last until death do you part, and I'll tell you what, when you go hard after God, when you put God in the center of the relationship, when you put God in the center, it's going to strengthen you up, but friends, it is not going to keep you immune from fighting. Did you catch that? When you put God in the center of your relationship and go hard after God, it's going to strengthen and build up your relationship, but it is not going to stop conflict from happening in the relationship. James chapter 4 puts it like this in uh, verse 1. What causes fights? Now catch this language. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from the desires that battle within you? You desire, but don't have. So you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want. So you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask. You don't ask God. Let me give you the three most common issues that married couples fight about. Number one is finances. Number two is parenting. Number three is intimacy. And when you weigh those things down, they really boil down to three things that can get into every single relationship. Basically, number one is not feeling included. Number two is not feeling respected or loved. And number three is poor communication. And that works on all levels of relationship. It doesn't matter if it's your friends or your child or your employer or your parent. I mean, the reason why we fight, the root cause of why we fight is always the same. And you can go back and you can say, well, it was because, it was because, but the root cause is always the same. The root cause of our fights come down to one word. Are you ready for it? Carnality. You're going, I don't even have a clue what that word means. Self-pleasing nature, selfishness. I, me, mine. We fight when there is too much me in the we. That's why we fight. It gets relationships into a mess. That's why uh, the, when waters are calm in the marriage, selfishness enters in, it can turn to a torrent of trouble. When selfish gets into the relationship, it can grind a good relationship with a kid down to a halt. That's why people leave churches, selfishness. Leave marriages, selfishness. Leave job, selfishness. Walk away from friendships, selfishness. Even sports teams, selfishness. Too much me in the we. 
selfishness. It's the battle that starts within. It begins to battle within us, and it finally rises without us, and then the conflict starts, the quarrel happens, it turns into a big fight, and, and then this, we get this me mindset. I, me, mine. You know, I can probably, I, I could probably fight a lot less and be a lot less offended if I just drop the me mindset. My relationships would just change if I just dropped the me mindset. Can you imagine how your relationships would change if you said, no, you come first in this relationship, not me. Yeah, I love, I love the scriptures for a number, number, number of reasons. One of the major reasons is they, it paints a picture of all these dysfunctional families. It makes me feel good because it feels like my family's pretty tame compared to what I see in the scriptures. If you ever want to feel good about yourself, just get into, just get into the Old Testament like books like Genesis, and you're going to see dysfunction at its height. One of the most dysfunctional stories starts in Genesis chapter 25. Turn there with me. It's two famous people in the faith, a guy by the name of Isaac, that's uh, Abraham's son, and his wife, Rebekah. So Isaac and Rebekah, they are blessed with, with twin boys. And during Rebekah's pregnancy, she described the boys as wrestling within her womb. She said, listen, I, I can't explain this, but it feels like they're fighting inside of me. So she asked God why her unborn boys are fighting inside of her. And here's what God says in verse 23 of Genesis 25. The Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. And God says the reason why there's a fight in you is because there's going to be a fight coming out of you. And those two boys are going to fight for the rest of their days because there's two nations in there, and they're going to wrestle with each other for as long as they're alive. And Rebecca gave birth to her firstborn son by the name of Esau. Esau came out, and then the second born of the twins was named Jacob, and Jacob came out grasping the heel of Esau. Just right after his older brother came out, he was grasping his heel, and he came out too. And 11 chapters of Scripture, 11 chapters of Scripture describe this sad story that unfolds. Let me just hit the low points for a moment. Each parent had a favorite. That's a low point. <laughs> Isaac, Isaac's favorite was Esau. Esau was, was a hunter. He was tough. He was rugged. Rebekah's favorite was, was Jacob. Jacob was soft features, the Bible says. He was, he was quiet, and he liked to cook in the kitchen. And those two boys were very different from each other. And mom and dad had decided and made the mistake to mark their children as liking one above the other. Boy, that's a recipe for disaster, isn't it? And friends, that led to a lifetime of competition and conflict amongst those two, those two boys. And this one time, Jacob was cooking some stew and in the kitchen, of course, because that's what he did. And Esau was out in the fields hunting, and he came in. He was famished. And he decided that it would be a good deal to give up his birthright, his inheritance, for just a little bit of stew. And he begged Jacob, give me some stew, and I'll give you my inheritance. Guys, I've made some bad deals in my life. That's a pretty bad deal. And Esau thought it was a good deal, but what he didn't know is Jacob was going to scheme against him and steal that birthright completely. And along with his mother, Jacob and his mother both went in and, and lied to Isaac. Isaac was blind, and Jacob decided, you know what, I'm just going to go in there and pretend I'm going to be Esau, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get dad's blessing. I'm going to make sure I get his inheritance. And, and he did. And when Esau found out, guess what happened? Well, World War III broke out. He lost his mind, and he wanted Jacob dead. Genesis chapter 27 and verse 41, it tells us that Esau held, or Esau held a grudge rather 
against Jacob because of the blessing his father had given him. Esau held a grudge, that's to say the least. He said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are near, meaning Isaac is soon going to die, my dad is soon going to die, then I will kill my brother Jacob. And so what Esau says is when dad dies, Jacob is going to die with him. You might as well you might as well open up two tombs, one for dad and one for Jacob. But Jacob is no dummy, right? Jacob escapes for his life. He recognizes that gonna, or Esau rather, is going to kill him, and, and uh, the, J- Jacob flees the land. He's MIA for 20, 20 years. And that sibling relationship turned into one big mess. Why did it turn into a big mess? I, me, mine. Too much me in the we. Selfishness. That's what stirs the calm waters of marriage and can turn them into a torrential torrent of trouble. That's what grinds a good relationship that you have with a kid to a halt. That's why people leave churches. That's why people leave marriages. Or people leave jobs. People leave friendships, even sport teams. There's too much me in the we. And that's the battle within. And think of your relationships. Think about your relationships that have experienced trouble. What's the root cause? What's the root cause? What's the root cause? Well, it can be traced back to a selfish desire that you had or the other had or both of you had, and you fought it out, and you weren't willing to compromise or sacrifice or forgive or set aside your pride. Man, think how fast marriages can spoil when selfishness enters in. In the Old Testament book of Hosea, beautiful book, it has a story running through it that just is gross with the pursuit of self-pleasure. Hosea is a preacher, and he married a beautiful woman who has an ugly name. Her name is Gomer. Homer and Gomer. And they had a loving relationship, but somewhere in that relationship, she turned and she sought self-pleasure. She sought self-pleasure in the, in, in, in the arms of other men. She decided that it would be better not to be a preacher's wife, but to be a city prostitute. And she chose that life for herself. And she just couldn't get enough pleasure found in men. And so she wanted to be with every man she could possibly be with in the entire city. And eventually, she was with every single man. She was, she was finally to the point where every man had been with her and no one wanted her. But that whole time, that decade and decade and decade of misuse and mistreatment and abuse of her being a prostitute, Hosea waited on her to come home, loved her, with all of his heart, unconditionally, never scoffed at her, never scolded her, just waited for her to return to her senses so that she could be loved by him. Loved like they used to love when they were young. He never stopped loving her. You know, everyone's going to have this moment in life. Like Maybe it could be a long stretch. Maybe it's just like a, a, just a, a quick thing where we're going to be selfish. Where we want what we want when we want it. It might lead to a fight, but if it's over a long stretch, it might lead to a battle. And I'm here to tell you, all couples fight. Healthy, healthy couples fight fair. Healthy couples fight for a resolution. But unhealthy couples fight to win. And today, it isn't about if you will fight. Today is about how will you fight. How will you fight when the conflict comes in your relationships because I think a part of learning how to fight fair is learning on who we're, who we're really fighting against. Many of us are, are fighting the wrong enemy. Like your friend has become your enemy. Your boss has become your enemy. 
Your parents have become your enemy. Some of you feel like you're sleeping with the enemy. God's word tells us that we're not fighting against humans. We're fighting against forces and authorities and against rulers of darkness and powers in this spiritual world. We're fighting a spiritual battle, and Satan is your enemy. He wants to destroy the fabric of your family and your friendships. That's what Satan wants to do. He knows that you were designed to live life together rather than alone. He knows that you need and feed off of people, and he wants to take that from you. He doesn't want that for your life. And friends, I'm here to tell you, it's not easy to recognize your enemy. Because some of you in your room are like, my wife is my enemy. I guarantee it, she's my enemy. Or some of you kids are like, my parent is my enemy. I guarantee it. Or my boss is my enemy. I guarantee you, my boss is my enemy. It's not always easy to spot the enemy. This past week, Special Forces Major Matthew Goldstein made the news cycle. You might have heard his story as it was on Fox News, CNN, and MSNBC. He's going to be going to a, a tribunal court, military court. They're going to be trying him for killing a suspected Taliban bomb maker. Now, he claimed that that man who he killed was indeed a, a Taliban bomb maker. But it just goes to show you how hard it is to detect the enemy in a place like Afghanistan, where the sh- he could be a shopkeeper by day, but a bomb maker at night. So difficult to determine the enemy. But I do know this. Once our armed forces determine who their enemy is, who their adversary is, they go out that adversary with deadly force. They ain't playing around. They're going to die. And you've made your spouse your enemy. He's not. Satan is your enemy. He wants your marriage destroyed. Some of you have made your boss your enemy. She is not. Satan wants to make sure that your workplace, where you spend so much time at, is going to be hell on earth for you. Some of you have made your parent your enemy. Your parent is not your enemy. Satan is your enemy. He wants nothing more but to see the very fabric of your family ripped out from you. you know, I had this preacher friend that told me that Satan appeared before his congregation. Everyone started screaming and running for the front doors of the church, trampling each other frantically and in an effort to get away. Soon everybody was gone, but there was this, this little old man that sat there in the seat in the sanctuary calmly. The only one was left, and Satan came up to him and said, do you know who I am? The man replied, yep, sure do. Satan asked, aren't you going to run? Nope, sure ain't, said the man. Why are you not afraid of me, asked Satan. The man said, because I've been married to your sister for 48 years. That's good. You know what? You might think that you're married to the devil. You're not. You're not fighting against flesh and blood. And, and the, the, the quicker you can discover that, that this conflict that's in your relationship, this conflict that this is, is in your marriage is a spiritual conflict, the quicker you can discover, the faster you'll determine the real enemy, and that's Satan. Satan who deceives, Satan who tempts, Satan who accuses, Satan who brings guilt. Once you can recognize you're dealing with an adversary that wants the fabric of your family and friendships ruined, then you can start properly fighting the right enemy. I also think a part of learning how to fight fair is knowing how to fight. Many of us are fighting with the wrong motives. I think we're just fighting with the wrong motives. Healthy relationships fight fair. Healthy relationships fight for a resolution. Unhealthy relationships fight to win. But may I say, Unhealthy relationships also fight to wound. 
If you've ever been on the receiving end of a truth statement that cuts you deep, for most of us, the natural reaction is one to swing back and counterpunch and wound somebody just as badly as we've just been wounded, even though it was the truth. We want to wound in return. Sometimes the motive is to protect our pride. Boy, how many fights could have been just stopped if we would have just dropped our pride and shown a little bit of humility and said, you're right, I'm wrong. But even though we know we're wrong, we continue to fight. Like a person who's cornered in the boxing ring. And what I found out is that those who are cornered and can't drop their pride, what's about ready to happen next gets really, really messy. Maybe for you it's uh, not just about wounding somebody or protecting your pride. Maybe it's about gaining power. I think to, to fight to gain power or to, to gain uh, overpower someone, boy, that's a wrong motive. I knew a guy that then went out with his buddies about five times a week, five times a week in the evening. So he'd get home and he would look at his wife and say, well, I'm going to go out with the guys tonight. Now, his wife put up a little fight from time to time, and she'd say, no, 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 can we just spend an evening home together? And when she would push back, he would throw a temper tantrum, like a two-year-old. And he'd scream, and he'd holler, and he'd cuss, and he'd yell, and he'd get in his truck, and he'd slam the door, and he'd skid off and go off and go with the guys. To the point where his wife wouldn't even push back anymore. She'd just let him go. She wouldn't even say a word about it. You know what he had done? He'd overpowered her. He forcibly made her submit. Friends, learn to fight fair. Fight for a resolution. That means you might have to compromise. Men, that means you will have to sacrifice. It could mean that you will have to say the words, I'm sorry, you were right, I was wrong. Those might have to venture out of your mouth. But learn to fight fair. Make the issue the thing that you're fighting in the ring, not the person. Have this, have this resolve that says, Honey, you and me and God, we can solve this together. We can get through this. You know, the Bible brings us great counsel on this. It says, do nothing from selfish ambition or, or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourself. You know, if your motive is selfish, it's the wrong motive to fight. This is teaching us, fight for unity. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. Fight for unity. Fight for each other. Fight to resolve the conflict. Because in times of conflict, fight for unity is more important than fighting for personal victory. But yet there's all sorts of couples and there's all sorts of relationships in this room that fight for personal victory over the unity of the relationship. Friends, it's time that we start fighting with the right motives, the motives of unity. I think a part of learning how to fight fair is knowing how to fight. And many of us are fighting with the wrong tactics. Sometimes we fight with no other plan but to be right. Like, we just are fighting to be right. Even though we know we're wrong, we're demanding our right to be right. Proverbs chapter 20 says this, Avoid a fight. Avoiding a fight is a mark of honor. Did you catch that? Avoiding a fight is a mark of honor. Only fools insist on quarreling. And what I've discovered in my life is most fights could be avoided if I just shut my mouth. Most fights are not planned out. Have you discovered that? My wife and I have never planned out a fight. Have you? Like, hey, at 3 o'clock, let's get in the kitchen and let's just really duke it out. <laughs> no. It happens like a volcanic eruption, doesn't it? 
We get upset. We boil below. And then one time, we just lose our top. And it happens where? Well, it can happen anywhere. It happens in front of the kids, in public, during family outings that we're supposed to enjoy, at the ball field. And we let our emotions override us, and, and we let feelings get away of the facts. Let, let me share with you one of the, one of the great lessons that I, I've learned the, the very hard way. Years ago, I was in a band, and we were setting up for a concert at a summer festival, and we were doing a sound check, and we were getting the sound levels just right, and I'm the guy that has everything set up and ready to go, and so I'm just standing there ready to go, and, and my lead guitar player, a guy by the name of Kenny, he wasn't at his spot, he didn't have his gear set up, but he was in the back with the sound people trying to get some last minute sound things set up, but it was almost start time, and Kenny was frustrating me like no end, so I got on the microphone with the crowd beginning to come in, and I don't remember what I said but I can remember it wasn't said well. Not planned, no tact, it just kind of boiled up out of me uh, through the PA system for everybody to hear. And here's how he handled it. A rain delay had come, and because of whether we had to run back to a, a trailer, and we waited it out, and uh, Kenny, our guitar guy, came over, and he privately handed me a, a, a drink, and he said, hey, the time to work out an issue isn't in public. It's here in private. You turned a private issue into a public one. I'll never forget that. And you know what he did that day? Kenny, uh, he chose the time of the fight. He chose the venue. And he set the tone. You see, I just let things erupt out of me. And he said, I'm just going to let things calm down. And I'll choose the time of the fight, I'll choose the venue, and I'll set the tone. And that day, Kenny was teaching me what the Apostle Paul was teaching a young man in the faith by the name of Timothy. Again, I say, Paul says to Timothy, don't get involved in foolish, ignorant arguments that only start fights. A servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be kind to everyone. Be able to teach and be patient with difficult people. And that day, Kenny was teaching me that a servant of the Lord doesn't, doesn't quarrel, that they're kind. And he was being patient with a difficult person. So maybe that's the challenge for us today. The challenge to not quarrel but be kind. You're like, boy, that sounds like kindergarten stuff, doesn't it? But how difficult can it be? Hard, isn't it? Not quarrel, but be kind. And I think to get there, you're going to have to set some rules of engagement, just like any fight or battle has. You're going to have to have some rules of engagement. Let me just share with you three rules of engagement that, that I think you're going to generally apply to your relationships that will help you out. This comes from the book of James, the, the letter of James. James is dealing with a group of people in the church that are fighting it out, rich and poor. They're fighting together. And James says to them, everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. And within that line, that one sentence of James 1.19, I think we can pull out three general rules of engagement. Number one is, I will stop and listen carefully. I will stop and listen carefully. Like, remove the distraction from what's being, what's being said to you. My wife knows that if I have a guitar in my hand, I'm not going to hear anything. So it's put down the guitar and listen. Maybe for you, it's a cell phone, or it's a remote control, or it's a book. 
Put that down. Give that person your full attention. And don't look to how you can respond or come up with your answer. Just listen for a moment. And pay attention to their tone of voice. Pay attention. You can get it. Are they stressed? Are they excited? Are they hurt? What's their tone of voice? You know, my wife will confront me from time to time and she'll say, boy, you sure sounded angry when you were talking to the boys. I'll say, I wasn't. She said, well, you need to watch your tone of voice. How about empathize? Empathize is just simply your pain in my heart. Your pain in my heart. I understand what you're, I'm going to put myself in your shoes. I can understand a little bit of what you're going through. And when you start to empathize and you get yourself there, what happens is you'll want to listen because you'll want others to listen when you're in that pain or when you're speaking up. Second rule of engagement is this. I will guard my words vigilantly. Everyone should be quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to become angry. Slow to speak. I've heard it said, be sure to taste your words before you spit them out. I think that's what James is getting at. His advice is slow to speak. You see, it doesn't matter how sincere your apology is. Once those words have gone out of your mouth, they stick to our heart. That's true for us dads. That's true for you, bosses. Once those words come out of your mouth, they land and stick on the heart. Words have the power. James says this. Words have the power over life and death. It's words, isn't it? That can make a marriage blossom or a marriage wither. Friends, I can think back to my childhood and I can still remember the words from teachers and coaches and friends and enemies that have landed right on my heart and have stuck and have wounded me and I can't shake. Proverbs chapter 21 verse 23 says, The one who guards his mouth and tongue keeps himself out of trouble. Just guarding your mouth and your tongue keeps you out of trouble. But just like words can damage, let's recognize that words can fix. Words can build up. So be free with life-giving words. Be free with life-giving words. Speak into your children. Encourage your kids. Speak into your spouse and encourage your spouse. One compliment can affect a lifetime. Can affect a lifetime. Here's the third rule of engagement. I will manage my anger righteously. Oh, I don't always do that. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. If there is something that I have to conquer in my daily walk with Christ, is to have to call on Christ to help me overcome my anger. Some of you are like, boy, you don't look like an angry guy. You don't know me very well. Injustice, rude people, above the rules, attitude, disrespect, that will set me off. And I have to pray that God holds me back and brings me peace because I have the potential just to lose it on people. You know, the next part of the scripture really out of James 1.19 is James 1.20. It says, why should we be slow to become angry? Well, James says, because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Matt, when you blow your lid, you're not being like God. You're not living up to his standards. There's nothing right that can come out of that. There's nothing godly that's going to come out of that. It's just going to be a whole lot of me in the we. That's what's going to come out of it. But may I say that human anger doesn't produce righteous results. Human anger doesn't produce righteous results, but anger can be handled righteously. You can handle your anger righteously. 
You can do the right things with your anger. You can just step back and say, God, would you take the wheel right now? Ephesians chapter 4 puts it like this. Don't sin by letting anger control you. Don't let anger control you. Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry, for anger gives a foothold to the devil. I think Phyllis Diller is the one who said, don't let the sun go down while you're angry. Fight all night. I think that's what she said. Some of you are like, hey, my grandparents used to give me that advice. But you know what the real advice is here? The advice is that Paul's saying is, you don't have control over the sun. You don't have control. You, you have no control over the sun. But you have control over your anger. That's what Paul's saying. You have control over the desire to forgive, the desire to love. You have control over those kinds of things. You don't have control of a lot of things, but you have control over yourself, Paul says. Get control of your anger. You're saying, how do I do that? I think it comes from saying, God, I need you more than I need myself. I need you. You're the change agent. You're the one that can do an inside work on me. You have the power to transform me, to bring me peace, to break the cycle of my anger. Peace is found in Christ Jesus, friends. So decades have gone by. Decades have gone by. And that preacher named Hosea, who married that beautiful woman with that ugly name, Gomer, they haven't seen each other for decades. And then one day he's walking through the city square. He recognizes through the wrinkles and the grain hair and the haggard back that that's just possibly his wife who stands on the auction block. Oh, she's on the auction block that day because she's a used up, worn out prostitute that no one wants anymore. And she's being sold to the pimp that will pay the lowest price. But no one wants her. She's all used up. And Hosea looks at her, and he puts up a bid, and he says, I'll pay six ounces of silver and nine bushels of barley for her. Last week, I, uh, I did the math at today's rate. He was saying she's worth $126.60. But in his eyes, she was priceless. And he sweeps her up into his arms. And he carries her home. And he loved her because he'd always had loved her. Unconditionally. And it didn't matter what she had done, who she had become, or how deeply he was wounded. He decided the best way to fight was to forgive. To show grace. To be like God. Friends, that picture of Hosea and Gomer is really a picture of how God treats you and me. That God stands there and he waits for us with arms wide open and says, you're living your life your way, doing your selfish things, putting all this me in the we. I'll wait for you. I'll wait for you to come home. And when you do, I'll scoop you up and I'll love you like I've always loved you. I'll, f I'll forgive you. I'll show you grace. Boy, that's what God wants for you today. Is come to him to no longer fight, but to find resolution in Jesus Christ and be made whole.